it's the right sort of feedback that is the reason why we're doing it. Kind of this will be remembered. This has helped me get back on our feet. This has helped take away um, a, a huge area of worry and extra cost for us that we admit we haven't had to consider before. Um, and it's just facilitated great conversations um, with, with our customers. Welcome to the Insider Startup Podcast, where each week we bring you cutting-edge insights into the behind-the-scenes world of rapidly growing businesses and successful entrepreneurs. So who is behind the pod? Well, each week you will join me, your host, Charlie Stewart, and my co-pilot, another Charlie, Charlie Barron, who is the co-founder of the Up Company. That name may not be familiar to you yet. However, our brand name certainly will be. Charged Up is Europe's largest phone charging network and Cleaned Up is the UK's largest distribution network of hand sanitizer dispensers. Very handy in this COVID world, of course. Our growth over the last two years has enabled us to meet and learn from some truly inspirational and insightful individuals who have provided their pearls of wisdom to us in order to help our business grow. We are now going to get them on the pod and have them share their wisdom with you to hopefully provide some inside information on how to grow your business, your personal brand, and provide advice you don't get in school. This week on episode two of the Insider Startup Podcast, we are joined by James Metcalf, who is head of Great Britain Activation at Diageo, a brand you will certainly be familiar with and whose drinks you most certainly will enjoy. We talk about how this pandemic has affected the on-trade sector, Diageo's fantastic COVID support initiative, Raising the Bar, to help reopen the on-trade, and also what innovations are being spawned out of this difficult time to revolutionize the wider hospitality industry. We imagine a future world of outdoor theater-esque converted beer gardens as a safe, social distanced way to recapture the excitement of watching live sports in the new normal, as overused as that phrase now is. James also answers the burning question of what happens to all that Guinness that could no longer be drank due to lockdown. As always, I now pass you over to my future self. Enjoy. Welcome back to the Inside a Startup podcast. I'm joined as ever by the original Charlie in the business, one of two. It was originally one of three. Uh, and we're finally joined by a guest who's not employed by Charged Up or Cleaned Up by the Up Company, as we're now known. Uh, Charlie, would you like to introduce our guest for this week? Yeah, so we are really pleased to have James Metcalf from Diageo. Um, I'll let him explain a bit more about what he does because um, I'll probably murder it. <laughs> but um, yeah, just to re-update, I guess, what myself and Charlie do for anyone who hasn't listened to the first episode, I'm the co-founder of Charged Up, um, now Cleaned Up, um, and I've been leading the, the partnership side uh, and the kind of sales side of the business. Excellent. James, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, guys. Um, Charlie squared, I suppose. Um, <laughs> great to be involved. Um, look, so my role at um, Diageo is I head up our customer activation team um, in the on-trade. Uh, and having been with Diageo for the best part of a decade, working across um, various different parts of the business in the commercial side, um, so in the commercial function, covering things like customer marketing, uh, worked in commercial looking after some of the, um, I suppose, bigger managed groups like Stonegate and Fullers and Youngs and Marston's. Um, So I've I've worked in the on-trade for the best part of the last five years, whether it's from a commercial perspective or a customer marketing perspective. 
Um, now, um, I suppose our customer activation team sits as the sort of bridge between our consumer marketing team, so our um, GB brand team, so your uh, Gordon Smirnoff Bailey's Guinness uh, brand teams that look after our comms above the line. Um, and our team kind of look at how we translate those above the line comms into below the line. So what actually turns up um, in outlets? Um, and I suppose the on-trade is ever-evolving and that kind of encompasses what you would traditionally uh, count as the on-trade in terms of pubs, bars, nightclubs, but is now kind of very quickly evolving into things like what we would call third space, so non-traditional on-trade like street food markets. Um, you think if you had, if you'd bought a car park in central London about 10 years ago, you're probably now creaming it in with, with uh, all of these amazing spaces that are popping up in and around London, but also sort of festivals um, and stadiums as well. So... A uh, hugely varying role. My, my team um, look after all of the different brands in different guises, um, which cover kind of across our core spirits portfolio, beer, and what we call reserve spirits, which is the kind of premium and super premium brands like Ciroc and Tanqueray 10, et cetera. So um, it's great fun. Um, really enjoy being involved in the on-trade um, and working very closely and collaboratively with our customers um, to support them on growing their businesses um, and, and helping with our with our range of brands. Um, obviously, that's been pretty interesting over the course of the last few months, and I'm sure, sure we'll come on to it and the implications that, um, that everything that's happened over the last few months mean, I suppose, for the future. No, definitely. And so you touched on it briefly there. Uh, it's hard to have any conversation at the moment without talking about it, and it's almost like beating a dead horse now. But uh, the, the not-so-elephant in the room is, of course, lockdown. Uh, and being involved in the on-trade, it was, of course, one of the sectors which were hit hardest by by what's happened and so when when lockdown came into place uh and all of the restrictions were put in place what did that look like behind the scenes at diageo what were your initial reactions to what was happening and also how did you start to think that you could support these entree partners but also support the the other teams within diageo itself yeah of course um I suppose everything happened very quickly and we were in, I guess it's February and, and February and March is a really key kind of period for us. When you think about um, the Guinness Six Nations, February and March is a huge spike for us um, from a beer perspective. Um, it's our biggest kind of single activation on any brand across the rugby and then coming into St. Patrick's Day. Um, so uh, it couldn't have landed at much, much of a worse time um, in, in terms of that, but um, particularly as a rugby fan as well. So that was, that was hard on a personal level as well, but um, everything, yeah, happened, happened really quickly. So uh, once everything kind of went into lockdown, um, it was a real kind of focus on how we could support our customers um, in the short term and immediate term and, um, and helping them in terms of what, what to do and, and the right sort of advice um, an understanding of how to kind of lock lock up and, and close down safely, protect the line, beer lines, all these sorts of different things. Um, and then I suppose internally uh, managing our own business in terms of costs, um, costs and cash um, and uh, understanding where our investment had been planned to go um, and kind of ensuring that we managed our cost line as effectively as possible. Um, because the sales line obviously disappeared. So, so that was, um, I suppose, the course of the first month um, and then very quickly pivoting into understanding how to plan for and what the future looked like um, and getting as much insight as we could um, from the data but also from, from our customers in terms of how to plan. Um, and our general planning process has now become a lot more short-termist. So whereas we would 
in kind of March and April, we would have been starting to plan our financial year, which runs from July um, as a kind of 12-month period. We've now kind of brought that much closer um, uh, to the current day. So everything kind of looking at a quarterly basis, what our quarterly plans would be um, based on kind of insight and, and building a plan that's agile and flexible enough to react to very quickly changing circumstances. Um, we, we probably had planned for the trade to open around September, but actually that's obviously happened a lot quicker than we thought. Um, and therefore we've had to react pretty quickly to that to get kind of things, things online in order to, um, support customers to reopen. Um, and, and there's also been various different schemes and platforms over the course of the, the lockdown period, which hopefully has really, really helped out our customers. So Initially, we launched a bartender fund um, of a million pounds at the start, first at the start of lockdown to support bartenders um, who uh, were suddenly out of work, um, and, and that was received really well. Um, and then um, other sorts of programs like the keg, dis- keg destruction program. So obviously, um, in terms of what I was touching upon earlier, in terms of the timing of the lockdown, we'd obviously brewed a hell of a lot of Guinness in preparation for the rugby and St. Patrick's Day. Um, and then the whole world went on to lockdown just before St. Patrick's Day. So we, um, we had a frightening amount of Guinness, I'm afraid, in, in kegs, um, but also out, out with uh, our customers and in sellers. Um, and, and we made and have made the commitment um, and have been over the course of the last few weeks picking up and replacing um, all kegs that have gone out of date and, and um, over the course of the lockdown period and replacing them with fresh kegs. Because Do you know roughly the number- how many that is? Um, it's in the tens of millions um, <laughs> of, lit- of liters of Guinness, which um, which sadly have had to go down the drain, and I think probably part of me went with it. Um, <laughs> and, and just to touch on that, just to touch on that as well, for for someone who might not be uh, within the sector, does that essentially mean that they will literally just go down the drain, and that is what has to happen with with all those kegs? There's yeah, no way exactly. of recovering anything that's in there at all. It's all got to no. go. No, sadly, once it's in the keg, you can't get can't get it out and put it into something else, which is a shame. But that's and that's the case across all of the different beer brands. So, or um, and most of the other brewers have done a similar sorts of programs, which has been brilliant. Um, but but yeah, ultimately the the beer will go down the drain, and there's been implications on that in terms of the water boards, um, yeah. etc. But but there's there's tax implications in terms of the duty on that beer as well. So. So, so yeah, a, a huge exercise, um, and you consider that sellers are often underground, um, and a keg of beer isn't particularly light. Um, it's it's uh, it's been a hell of an operation to to kind of manage that and pick that up and and re- replace um, all of that beer because, as I said, the number one priority for us was ensuring that everybody's when we when the pubs reopened, everybody's first pint of Guinness was as good as the last because because quality of Guinness is the number one thing for us. Um, and we wanted to do everything we could to support our outlets to ensure that the kind of their beer quality was was um, where it should be um, when they reopened. And I think uh, hopefully, uh, definitely every pint that I've had since since the pubs have reopened around my area in London has been absolutely top draw. And I think I think many consumers will be finding that the quality of Guinness is just about as good as it's been for a long, long time. Um, and and I think the. the the steps that we made to ensure that have really made a difference. So there's that, and then we'll come on to it, I suppose. The, the final thing in terms of raising the bar, which has been a huge initiative, which I've been really proud to be part of, and, and obviously we've worked really closely with you guys on that as well. Yeah, just just going back to, to the point around how agile you guys have had to be. Um, I know obviously for us as a company, as a founder of a company of only 40 employees, we can be agile because we just have less processes, less red tape. 
surely a lot of that red tape must have had to have come down and how did you guys did you almost have to build like a scrum mentality we brought in people from different areas of the business to just think about what do we do right now um how do we help you know the on trade out how how did that form you know the idea of raising the bar was it every single kind of heads of department from every single part of the business had to come together in a in a big zoom call or could you just give us a bit more insight into you know behind the scenes how, how do those decisions get made so quickly yeah absolutely we we um we kind of call them mfsts so multifunctional selling teams or or kind of um because there's such a huge business and we've got lots of different people in different disciplines um the only real way, well, well, one of the most effective ways is bringing different people from loads of different um, parts of the business together in order to kind of um, brainstorm and flesh out solutions to issues that we've got, which is largely driven also by insights. So we've got a huge kind of category strategy team who will be looking at and feeding in information from the likes of Nielsen and Kantar and, and getting real kind of on the ground and live research um, in terms of uh, trends and opportunities and, and issues that we're seeing and need to either pounce on or kind of counter. So, so, so yeah, look, the, the kind of the raising the bar piece was a, a global, um, a global initiative, uh, which would have been decided down at an exec level, a fair few levels above me. I wish I was, I wish I could say that I was one of the people that was involved in the idea, but sadly I was one of the minions that was executing it. Uh, well, not sadly, but you know what I mean? Um, so, so, uh, so yeah, that's the kind of way that the business functions. Um, we're, we're lucky in the sense of having lots of interdisciplinary, disciplinary people, um, across all sorts of different, whether it's specifically kind of commercial consumer marketing, customer marketing, shopper marketing, finance, um, insight, uh, and therefore hopefully we should have loads of different kind of, and, and diversity, I think is something that we're very, um, kind of clear on and have very clear objectives on in terms of I think what people traditionally consider as diversity in terms of whether it's race, ethnicity um, and, and we lead I think we really lead the way on that but actually the business is very strong on diversity of thought and background as well and I think that really creates um, the right sorts of reactions to opportunities because there is lots of people with lots of different diverse thoughts and backgrounds and understandings and knowledge bases and experiences um, that means we are often really well placed to um, to pounce on these kind of opportunities, but also react in the right way to kind of issues and, and problems. Yeah, and so from from our end, I guess we've we've briefly talked about um, raising the bar, Charlie. It'd be good to get an idea as to how um, we started working with Diageo on that particular project, what that meant for for us on our end. Uh, and then also how it impacted the, the, the project overall as well and, and sort of what we're doing together. Sure. So I, since the start of, of, of launching Charged Up and, and starting this business, um, Diageo has been kind of the number one brand we've been speaking with and, and working with on smaller campaigns for the Charged Up side. Um, obviously Charged Up, if you're unaware, um, is a, a power bank rental network, which is predominantly based in the on-trade. So pubs and bars, and we're in the majority of the large managed chains, uh, like Stonegate and Green King. Um, so we all work with Diageo on, on various uh, smaller projects to do with you know, in activations within those venues through the Charged Up app. Um, and so as soon as obviously lockdown hit, we pivoted to Cleaned Up. We grew that very quickly. Um, but in the back of our minds, 
the reason we went to cleaned up and we went for cleaned up was to try and support our existing network, which was predominantly the on trade. How do we reopen the on trade as quickly as possible so that people can go out and start using charged up again? That was, you know, the, one of the, one of the major reasons we, we did, we did cleaned up. So then it's looking at how do we support the on trade? How do we get cleaned up in as many of those locations as possible? And of course, uh, as I knew, I could see Diageo doing lots of stuff in the background. You're, you guys were wanting to make a difference as well. And so then it just seemed like the perfect synergy and we, we connected up and we just started sharing ideas. And it literally was, was from that. It was, we have this great opportunity. I believe you guys are, are looking to make an impact. How do we now grow this? And it, it kind of stemmed from there, didn't it, James, where it went from a, a small kind of activation or small partnership to this huge campaign that was was built and now is kind of the the market leader in the in the, in the space yeah i think i think um originally the conversation started with uh you guys trying to find some ethanol basically to, yeah. to make yeah. to make hand sanitizer so um we we had been um starting to do things in this space so we had been creating at a smaller scale our own kind of hand sanitizer out of the obviously we have millions and millions of liters of ethanol being produced every year that will be going into um, well, various different things, but whiskey barrels to be aged in terms of turning into whiskey. Um, but obviously, demand was um, coming down from that perspective. When you think about how many, how much whiskey is sold in the likes of what we call global travel, so duty free, um, and also in the kind of emerging markets. So there was a uh, definitely a um, surplus of ethanol that we that we had, um, and it was becoming very obvious that it was very difficult to get hold of the actual um, raw ethanol in order to be met to, to make the hand sanitizer and and we've been we were looking at this um, internally on a smaller scale and then um, we got the great news to kind of down from a global level um, that we would be doing the raising the bar program which essentially just massively supercharged the scale that we were able to go to um, and uh, we, we kind of facilitated a million litre donation of ethanol um, uh, to to create the hand sanitizer and then have uh, have funded the creation of the kind of what we're up to about 20 20,000 units ship now um, of the hand sanitizer dispense units as well and then that's gradually kind of fleshed out into things like also helping out outlets with PPE um, and takeaway glassware kits as well but but from a, a conversation of have you basically got any ethanol um, <laughs> over an unbelievably short period in terms of what's the, the execution um, period of the of the program to date um, we've got to an unbelievable scale and I think the feedback that we've had from kind of individual customers um, from kind of Land's End to John O'Groats as well pretty much um, across the country and the, the scale at which we've been able to support um, uh, between between the two businesses has just been amazing and I think something that, that everybody involved should be really proud of. And you, you talked about Land's End to John O'Groats there. I saw a graphic that was shared on one of our internal communication tools earlier on today with a map of every single cleaned up station across the UK and it's harder to find an area where there isn't now a cleaned up station as opposed to looking to where one is Uh, and so obviously from our internal viewpoint on the project it's been a great success for us uh, and for you guys as well but you you briefly touched on it in terms of the the end customer what has the feedback been um, from the likes of the managed chains on, on this type of project uh, and how has it impacted them and their ability to, to start trading again? Yeah, I think uh, over... 
having feedback um, from both managed change and, and independence has been um, has been incredible. And, the, and it's the right sort of feedback that is the reason why we're doing it. Kind of this will be remembered. This has helped me get back on our feet. This has helped take away um, a, a huge area of worry and extra cost for us that we have, we haven't had to consider before. Um, and it's just facilitated great conversations um, with, with our customers. Um, and I think, um, and, and our outlets. And I think one of the key things to bear in mind on this project is that we're not just looking to support our customers. It's, it's all outlets. Um, and any, any outlet, irrespective of being a customer of Diageo, I suppose, has been eligible for the, for the, um, the scheme. And we've supported loads of outlets that aren't necessarily our, our customers um, across the country, which has been brilliant um, as well. Uh, because, as I say, this is about supporting the trade to get back online uh, with the with the proviso that obviously it benefits everybody that's been involved in the trade, whether it's us, our competitors, um, all of the different suppliers that facilitate the on-trade, um, and then the, obviously the on-trade operators, licensees from your kind of larger groups, um, who some might think don't need the help, but actually have been some of the most thankful for the help. So you're kind of your dog and duck in the middle of nowhere, and we had an amazing... Um, we had an amazing note, I think, from a social club who was asking for an address to send a chocolate hamper um, <laughs> because she was so happy with the support that we'd given, which is exactly the sorts of messages that kind of warm your, warm your heart after a tough, a tough week. Um, and what was, look, a, a incredibly, and it still is a very complex logistical exercise um, at the scale that, that we have done. Um, so, so, yeah, it's been, it's been challenging, um, as you'd expect at the scale, but, but I think the, the end result and the feedback that we've had uh, have, have definitely made everything worthwhile. Definitely. Uh, and one of the other things that obviously has come out of lockdown, particularly you know, beyond just hand sanitizer and, and the various other things, the need now for pubs and bars who have not necessarily always had the greatest relationship with technology uh, and new innovation coming forward We've seen a lot of new order-to-table services, queuing services, uh, particularly to meet with the demands for two-meter spacing. What do you think COVID will do for the overall innovation landscape uh, and marrying that with Entree? Do you think there are going to be a lot more, there's going to be a lot more openness from those big managed chains to actually test out new products, new innovations, because uh, they don't know what's going to come around the corner? Yeah, absolutely. I think there's a few kind of um, dynamics that are developing. I mean, particularly from a digital perspective, I think you're, you're, you're bang on. Um, it's not the two necessarily, the two haven't necessarily gone hand in hand um, uh, in the past in terms of technology, digital and the on-trade. Um, but ultimately, what, what has happened over the course of the last few months is, is turbocharged that and, and, and outlets have had to get very proficient um, in particularly, as you say, the likes of the what we're calling kind of contactless commerce in a in a environment when an outlet and a consumer only really trusts the phone that they've got in their hand. Um, how can you make that consumer experience and consumer journey uh, just as it was kind of before COVID? Um, and I think um, from my own experience, uh, there's been it's been pretty mixed um, in terms of how well uh, different outlets have done it. Um, and I think there are certain kind of platforms that have been, that are better than others. Um, we have partnered with a uh, company called Omnify who've created a, a platform called Orderbee. Um, and as part of the kind of raising the bar program, but our general on-trade support are looking to work with customers to fund a part of a license for a period um, in order to get them online if they haven't already um, got a platform or a, 
um, solution in this space, um, which will be pre-populated with category-driven menus. Um, because I think one of the things which you can see very starkly is there's some places where they've literally taken a paper menu and tried to replicate it on a, on a, on a app or a web-based platform rather than thinking about the consumer journey. And actually, as an example, you, my wife trying to order a gin and tonic, you have to go into a gin section, you then select the gin, you then have to come out of that, that section, you then go into a mixer section and, and, um, and uh, select your tonic. I think it's, it's now trying to get our operators in the mindset of in that digital consumer journey, the digital kind of path to purchase menu, what, how do I facilitate making that as easy as possible? Um, because making it as easy as possible will increase basket spend because the frustration that I had, for example, from it being so difficult to order a drink is you go, oh, forget it. I'll just go home and have a drink at home. So we need to, and, and we're, we're looking to help as much as we possibly can to facilitate that consumer journey, to make it as easy as possible. And also to have the similar sort of level of experience and ease of serve that you get um, through a paper menu because look, historically, the bulk of our kind of, what we call advertising and promotional investment would go towards buying space, I suppose, um, on a menu. So having a having a uh, Tanqueray and tonic at the top of the gin menu. Obviously, in a world where paper menus and physical menus are, are less prevalent or don't exist at all, we're looking to obviously how we can invest into gaining kind of the same level of share of voice or visibility from a digital sense. So I think there's that in terms of menus, and then I think there's also a really interesting piece around kind of the the spontaneous pub visit. Um, and whether that at the moment that kind of feels like it's dead because particularly in London and I'm sure it's replicated across city centres I have a perception that I can't just go to the pub if I fancy it tonight because everywhere will be fully booked and that may not be the case but I'm sure the outlets are missing out on the fact that people are not just chanting their arm at going to a pub because they're worried about walking to the pub and it not being and it being full Um, so I think there's an interesting space there in terms of how how outlets and I think we're looking at how we can support how outlets can kind of advertise that there is 10 free spots in, in the pub at the moment if you fancy coming down for a beer or whether there's a way for us to or whether there's a uh, an innovation into aggregating I suppose all of the different booking apps along those lines which means that similar to when you when you rent a Boris bike and you can see at each individual point where there's 10 free spaces so you can drop your bike off there or you know that there's a bike at a certain point to pick that up a technology like that. <laughs> yeah, or a charge of batteries. <laughs> exactly, yeah, yeah. Um, so, sorry, I should have used that example. But, um, but you know what I mean? I think that could yeah. be really powerful because that means that tonight at six o'clock where I'm like, wow, what an incredible sunny day, but there's no chance of me getting a spot in any pub because somebody will have booked everything. But actually there's 10 spots at the Womble down the road. Well, I would then go and have, have a beer there. So I think... That's an interesting space at the moment because the whole booking and spontaneous pub visits is a, is a challenge um, and making sure that we can help operators to maximise their capacity at all times. Yeah, and I guess particularly for your, you know, your role in the business, actually the bar space was a big prominent kind of area of advertising that, that brands like yourself used to try and dominate and, and do your clever things to, to get attention when I went to the bar to, to purchase you guys are clearly having to innovate quite dramatically in terms of you've lost potentially that whole, I guess, front of shop kind of, uh, you know, fascia where you can't even show your brands anymore. And I was speaking to a, uh, a pub owner, a bar owner uh, the other day and, and 
you're also losing the you know the joy of making a cocktail in front of someone so so then how are your brands having to adapt you know you've got some incredible spirit brands that are all about experience how do you then bring that into a, an app or into a table service um you know menu order to table kind of future like surely there are quite a few innovations that are kind of going to come out around experiential um to your table and are you guys kind of having to think about other ways um to kind of get your brand message across yeah, sure. Um, I think one of the most uh, interesting um, kind of spaces and innovations where we're seeing um, kind of huge demand at the moment is around draft cocktails. Um, yeah. So uh, just kind of pre-lockdown, um, uh, well, pre, pre-Christmas, we launched, um, we actually uh, bought a business called Tipplesworth, which, is in the, which was making pre-mixed kind of cocktail mix, mixes. Um, and have launched a draft cocktail system um, with two uh, SKUs at the moment. So we have a Smirnoff uh, espresso martini and a Smirnoff passion fruit martini um, on draft. It runs through this sort of similar sort of system as Guinness, so it nitrogenates the, the drinks. And, and honestly, you can pour kind of five in 15 seconds. Every single one comes out at one degree, and it surges almost and settles perfectly with a perfect head. And they are um, top, top draw, uh, brilliant, brilliant serves and brilliant cocktails. And actually, as you say, in a world where people are ordering from their table, one of the, one of the um, barriers, I suppose, and, and, and barriers that people put up to draft cocktails is, as you say, they want to have a cocktail made in front of them. Um, and they also have a skepticism of a draft cocktail in terms of what, how much alcohol's actually gone into it. Um, how much of the uh, kind of how, how alcoholic is the cocktail? What are the ingredients? They want to see the ingredients gone into it. Um, but actually what's happening is in a, in a world where you're not at the bar and we're serving these draft cocktails, which are delivered to your table, people are understanding very quickly how good these drinks are, um, the, the quality, the serve. Um, and also you're not having to have multiple touch points in creating that drink. Whereas if you're creating a, a passion fruit martini you've got four different products that are going into it you've got fresh fruit you've got fresh ice you've got a shaker there is loads of different touch points for a bar staff member to um to have actually a draft cocktail that you can pour off in two seconds that is a perfect replica of the same drink is the right temperature and ultimately is two touch points i.e touching the glass and then touching the tap um, that that feeds into all of the sorts of dynamics of hygiene um, and drink quality and consistency of drink quality. Um, that means that we've got a huge kind of waiting list of outlets to have this system installed. Um, I think that's a really interesting dynamic of, of, of kind of premix to an extent. And also, so in Spain, as another example, there's been a huge uptake in our Tanqueray and Tonic premix um, gin and tonic in a bottle, glass bottle. It's a really premium serve. And all of a sudden you can put, give a ice bucket with four um, premix Tanqueray and Tonics in with four straws and it's a much quicker, easier serve, more hygienic serve than creating, again, four fresh gin and tonics with loads of ice and fresh fruit and garnish, et cetera. So, so we're looking at sort of certain things in there. We've launched a Hague Club, uh, Clubman um, RTD, and we're looking at whether there's some easy serves that we can do through that, which is just, again, four cans and an ice bucket. There, w- there will be changes in dynamics in the way that people order and the way that people at groups order. Um, and uh, kind of helping out in terms of creating, a, well, facilitating it in easy hygienic serve where possible, um, I think will be an interesting innovation, well, more innovation of serve rather than innovation of drink, but, but um, the way that people consume and want to, want to buy in groups will be different, I, I think, moving forward, and we're looking at kind of solutions in that space as well. 
Excellent. And so in terms of the next 12 months, I know it's a very difficult question to, to answer right now because of the, the uncertainty, but what does the next 12 months look like, not only for Diageo, but also for the on-trade as well, as we look to, say, next summer? Yeah, I mean, look, it's, it's impossible to predict. And as I say, all, all we can do um, and all we're kind of focusing on um, in our planning is maintaining a plan that's agile and flexible to react um, and, and not kind of planning uh, too far out. As I say, we're kind of looking at it from a quarterly basis. Um, but the, there's, there's huge things on the, on, on the uh, horizon for us, right? So usually the Autumn Internationals, for example, would be a – Again, a massive spike for us in terms of our rugby execution. It remains to be seen what what that looks like, um, I suppose, uh, coming up in kind of October and November. Um, but what we want to try and do is to the next phase. Um, so kind of when we're talking about raising the bar, what I didn't mention is it's a, a fund um, that is around 29 million in the UK that is to be spent over a two-year period. So we haven't spent all of the money up front. It's, it, we are looking to phase that approach in order to be able to help outlets over a long period of time. And the kind of the next phase that we're looking at at the moment and just scoping out is what does sport look like in the on-trade uh, moving forward? Um, so currently, I think the research would suggest that, that, that consumers are much more comfortable watching sport at home. Um, I think uh, as that sort of moves forward, we're looking at what that sport experience looks like. Um, and, and in the uh, when you think about the sport in the autumn, once the sun goes down and it's cold and raining, um, what can we do to help outlets to create outdoor spaces that are kind of weatherproof, warm, outdoor projectors, outdoor furniture, covering, weatherproof covering in order to be able to increase your capacity to show sport in a safe and hygienic way, which makes consumers feel safe. Um, and I think we're looking at some research in that space at the moment um, to understand kind of in the phase two of raising the bar, what is it? What is the physical support that we can put into outlets to help increase their capacity and show sport? Because there is something unique about watching sport at the pub. I don't think you're ever going to have your kind of arms around strangers um, in, in, uh, in the pub, which is round watching a Six Nations game anytime soon. But um, there will still be a way to create an added value experience that people want to go to in the pub with their friends that is hygienic and safe. Um, that means people will want to come out of their home and experience something different. Um, so I think that will be, a, that's a really interesting space that we're trying to get into at the moment. And then look, everything will depend in terms of uh, the developments around um, kind of vaccines and government advice. And it's, and it's very difficult um, to, to kind of think about even kind of January, February next year, what that looks like. Um, and next summer, I'd love it. I'd love to think that we could get back to some level of normality. Um, uh, the what I kind of touched upon earlier in terms of the evolution of the on trade and the growth, of things like festivals, lifestyle festivals, third space venues, these amazing kind of trend leading venues where you can get food from all around the world, have a super high end top top drink which matches the food that you drink in a great environment with added value and music and all of these sorts of experiences that, that don't necessarily lend themselves to social distancing. We, I'd love it, love to think that next summer we could kind of be exploring those as well. But you even you speak to the likes of Live Nation and the innovation that they're doing in terms of drive-in festivals and 
every it, one of the most um, kind of exciting things has been seeing how the on trade um, and kind of wider on trade um, and people that are involved have been evolving their offerings, thinking, being innovative, thinking about new ways um, to kind of excite consumers and have new experiences um, has been amazing. Um, so, so th- there's the right sorts of people in the on trade who um, who won't go down without a fight. Um, so I'm confident that we'll be a huge kind of bounce back once we have some kind of more clarity on, on what the future looks like, I suppose, in terms of the virus itself uh, and the management of the virus um, and, and kind of really excited, I suppose, for what the future holds. You, I find it quite crazy when I look back at the numbers of the Raising the Bar initiative and obviously the numbers are only going to go upwards in terms of the amount of pairs of hands with sanitised has gone, you know, roughly over about 10 million already. Um, it's crazy numbers. And what I'm finding is really fascinating about the, the, the landscape of all brands is how brands are affecting everything from consumer behavior, which then affects potentially COVID numbers directly. So do you find, and is there anything internally around actually the actions you guys are taking does directly influence, you know, potentially what's going to happen in the future regarding COVID because, you know, the things that you do right now will make a difference in the long term. Uh, and I think the things that the Raising the Bar initiative's done, I, I believe this is almost the front line at the moment because, you know, British public, the, th- the first thing they go to is the pub as soon as lockdown lifted. Um, but trying to go there in a safe way is so important. Um, and I think it's actually on the brands to, to do as much as they can. The government's going to do as much as they can, but there's only so much. Do you guys have kind of internal talks around actually you know, you are setting the trend for what, you know, a safe watching Six Nations is going to be next year or watching uh, the autumn rugby, you know, how do you do that in a safe way? Actually, that's, you guys are making those decisions, not the government or not someone else. It's actually up to the brands to do that. Um, and yeah, do you guys have to constantly think how is this actually going to affect consumer behavior in a positive way in the COVID kind of world it is now? Because you could do a lot more things that's going to directly influence your bottom line and directly lead to you guys selling more drinks, but actually does the opposite in terms of infection numbers potentially. Um, how, do you, how do you have that balance between, you know, doing good for shareholders, but then also doing good for, you know, everyone in terms of a COVID world. Yeah, I think that's probably a question for um, a few levels above my head, to be honest. But, but um, I think definitely as, as one of the largest suppliers in the, um, in, I guess, alcohol and the on-trade specifically, we definitely have a responsibility um, to support our customers. Um, we also have, a, have access to a unique level of insight and data and information um, in order to be able to, I suppose, give us as good an advice as possible on what a safe environment looks like. Um, we've got great kind of consumer insight in terms of the top two or three things that consumers are looking for in order to feel safe in an outlet. Um, and what we're trying to do now is, I guess, bucket that information and insight up into just really simple bite-sized chunks um, so that, look, often, uh, well, and, and still um, now, a lot of our larger customers, their head office teams are still largely on furlough. Um, and therefore can't really look at more longer term uh, marketing plans. So what, we, what we're trying to do um, both uh, for kind of the managed groups in terms of making sure we have the right kind of information and insight that lands on um, our, our customers' tables uh, when they come back to work. So it's like, wow, oh, brilliant. That's done all the work that I didn't have the time to do because I've now got 450 things that I have to think about because this is the first day back after four months. 
the agile has helped me out in terms of understanding exactly what I need to do, exactly what our consumers are thinking and what they're looking for um, in terms of a safe experience. Brilliant. Let's go and do it. To have hosting and having that information on the My Diageo service, which are, is our kind of overall trade-facing platform, um, and through Diageo Bar Academy as well, where we have tons of information there to help out with outlets um, to uh, create the safe spaces, but also information on um, things like order B and contactless commerce platforms. Um, also things like we work with various different partners like Yext on search engine optimization. We're partnering with GladCloud on um, improving your general social media footprint um, and creating a uh, kind of much more streamlined view of all your different social media channels. Um, so so all we can do, um, I don't think we would ever profess to kind of, well, ever profess to kind of aligning to specific kind of um, the way that it's changing the reactions to the virus. But I think all we can do is use our level of insight to give as much advice and support um, to our customers, both large and small, um, in order to help them as much as possible to kind of create the right sorts of environments that we think consumers want to go back and experience. And do you think that could also um, be replicated across some other sectors, obviously not Diageo themselves, but do you think there is room? And I think also what Charlie was getting at is when, when speaking to the public, quite a lot of the general public are saying that they are starting to trust brands more than government in some instances. Obviously, we won't get into that because that's a whole different question. But do you think there is a responsibility amongst brands to help out within the areas in which they operate um, as being leaders within that area? Because, of course, the government can only do so much from an overview. Um, but fundamentally, the key players in the various sectors, um, they are the experts in consumer behavior within that particular area. So do you think there is room... Um, in other sectors, you know, outside of the on-trade, you know, maybe in retail or wherever it may be, for, for other brands to do something similar to what Diageo have done to really help out the on-trade? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think there are, there are, there are examples um, across, I guess, categories outside of alcohol, whether it's the, the support that Coca-Cola and Britvic and some of the other soft drink manufacturers are, um, are putting into the trade as well. And there's, there's examples of it um, across... Uh, loads of different categories in terms of um, how uh, different kind of, I guess, the leaders in each individual kind of subcategory um, have helped out the trade. And, and as I say, it's it's been great to be part of uh, kind of the overall on trade and its wider kind of connections and network all coming together um, because it's in the interest of everybody, right? As you said earlier, it's um, it's a fundamental part of British society going, going to the pub. Um, and you could see that in just kind of if you do any sort of social listening in terms of particularly on something like Guinness, which is so unique in the sense of pretty much any other drink you could make just as good at home. Um, well, depending on how good your cocktail skills are, but you could make a brilliant gin and tonic. You could make a great pint of lager um, and some basic cocktails. But the one thing you couldn't, unless you're lucky enough to be one of the few people that somehow set up their own pub in the back garden, which is one of my objectives, Mm -hmm. um, but you haven't been able to replicate a pint of draft Guinness um, and the amount of noise around kind of the anticipation of, uh, of, of Guinness. And I think that kind of old line around good things come to those who wait definitely uh, rang true for many people. But um, the, the anticipation of everybody getting back into the pubs was, was pretty stark, particularly in London. And I think 
yeah, it is a key part of British society that we just can't afford um, to lose. And I think uh, the way that everybody in the wide Elm Trade Network has pulled together to, to, to help out in as many ways as they could has, has um, been brilliant. And so just to finish on, and thank you, James, for, for all of your insights and your time as well. It's been incredibly in, interesting to get a, an insider's perspective uh, on what is going to happen to the on-trade over the course of, or what could happen to the on-trade on, over the course of the next 12 months. But to finish, if someone wants to find out more about the Raising the Bar campaign and if there is an eligible, eligible venue uh, to get a cleaned, a cleaned up station, where do they need to go? Yeah, sure. So any outlet um, is is eligible uh, to receive support from raising the bar, and I guess in this first phase of physical support. So if you visit mydiagio.com um, and uh, select GB, uh, you will see a uh, a banner on the website which says "Register here for raising the bar," um, and it's a simple kind of form that you need to fill out. Um, we're looking for outlets to make a commitment to raise the bar within their communities, um, and there's a few different. Um, kind of categories within that, whether it's supporting responsible drinking, um, uh, supporting sustainability or driving diversity and inclusivity in their communities. Um, that's a kind of prerequisite of the outlets that we want to support, but, but we, uh, we've got plenty of kits still left available. Um, so if you're eligible, please get registering um, and, and order your uh, equipment because the feedback that we've had has been amazing and there's still plenty of stuff to go around and we want to kind of help as many um, outlets and operators get back on their feet um, as quickly as possible. So, so yeah, that's uh, mydiagio.com um, and you can register through that platform there. Excellent. Any final words, Charlie? No, that's, that's really, really insightful and thanks so much for your time, James. Um, I'm sure we're going to have plenty more uh, opportunities to chat a bit further about the future of OnTrade um, and hopefully we can help out in any way um, you know, using our technology as well in the future. So looking forward to working with Diageo closer in the future as well. Brilliant. Thanks, guys. Excellent. Really enjoyed it. So, fresh from James Metcalf at Diageo, fantastic episode. We feel quite guilty because we're now enjoying Moretti, uh, and it's not really on brand. It's not really on brand. No, it's not. But James, or anyone at Diageo, really, if you want to send us some Guinness, uh, we can replace these. Happy days. Or, you know, James talked about it, um, the lucky few who have sort of built a you know, pub away from, I was going to say home away from home, but it's pub away from home, but the pub is essentially your home anyway in the UK. So, um, and have Guinness on tap. Yeah. That would be a dream. That would be the dream. If you're on furlough. Yeah. If you've got a lot of time on your hands, that's pretty much what I would do. Um, and get sponsored by, by Guinness would be a pretty good one, wouldn't it? Yeah. I mean, you can't, you can't go wrong, but we had lots of insights in that discussion. Um, particularly for a lot of people who aren't necessarily involved in the entree, there were so many different things discussed about what Diageo themselves are doing, uh, what we were doing to help the entree, but also, you know, what COVID will do for the entree moving forward in terms of the innovation. And so that's something that we at Charged Up look at in detail. We're looking at things constantly as to how we can help with all the things that you mentioned. What do you think, what were some of your key takeaways from, from what James was saying? Um, that are going to be really important things as we you sort of move out of this COVID stage, hopefully. Yeah, I think I mean, it's it's just how important they how important a role they play in everything. I think he was kind of um, 
playing it down somewhat, but brands just do play such a vital role in terms of, um, you know, keeping the on-trade alive, which I guess is number one. And then number two, driving people back to the on-trade. And that's why Raising the Bar uh, campaign is so good because it does both things. It, it supports the on-trade venues themselves and then the customers feel safe to actually go back and, and drink responsibly, drink in a safe way. Um, I think the first thing I was pitching to James was, you know, have a clean Guinness, which I don't think sat too well with, with his Guinness uh, brand team. But, you know, how can you sanitize your hands or how could you actually enjoy Guinness and be completely safe and not have to worry about, you know, getting COVID when you're in a pub? So I think, I think they play such a vital role. And, you know, not just from all of the consumer messaging they're doing and then the venue messaging, which is actually more important because the venues don't listen and the venues don't tell customers to to you know have two meter rule or um you know don't come inside then this whole thing just falls flat yeah. but actually the, the the venues themselves do listen to brands you know they actually probably listen to brands more than they do to to, to the government and and other officials because well because as well you know they're, they're trusted they they're experts in that sector and yeah. so obviously the the operators themselves they're also experts in terms of on the day-to-day running of their businesses but you know someone like diageo um when they talk, they know what they're talking about and people listen because what they're doing is, it'd be very easy for, for people to say, oh, well, actually, whatever it is that they're doing is only for their own benefit. But the two things go hand in hand. If the operators on the on-trade are succeeding, by definition, all of the other um, major drinks brand, Diageo included, but also their competitors, everyone benefits from this, as he was talking about. Um, and I think that also then touches onto the wider point around brands in other areas, we, we briefly talked about it during the conversation, but do you think there is space in retail, for instance, um, you know, a brand like Walkers, as an example, when people are going to get their products, do you think if Walkers have a branded uh, sanitizer station where people can get their crisps from, do you think that would positively influence behavior to go for that crisp versus one of their competitors because it looks like more secure and more sanitized? I think potentially like, we we have these internal chats around which products are being handled the most in the supermarket. And and when you think about it, and this is why during lockdown that was I was the most apprehensive to go to a supermarket because people just handle everything. You don't really realise you're picking up that, you're picking up that, you're putting it back. No one there were, there was no sanitizer at the start of lockdown. Uh, hence why we approached supermarkets straight away because um, we saw that as the the main place that COVID could get spread. Um, yeah, and I think. Brands like uh, Walker's Crisps, for example, that is the place when you go for a meal deal. I pick up about four different packs and change my mind about six times and put them back. Um, so if they, if them as a brand, were not only positioning their brand front and center of the store because that's what's happened with the with the with the Guinness stations is it's front and center. Everyone walks in, sanitizes their hands, see Guinness, and goes. Oh, well, this is great! It's been given for free. By so Guinness. do you do you think as well that consumers? I mean, I know I do it. Um, do you think if they see a particular brand as as Guinness has been, uh, they've got their brand all over our, our cleaned up stations, our sanitizer stations, do you think that then associates in the consumer's mind Guinness with safety and cleanliness and responsibility? 100%. And I mean, this is why there's so much investment in out-of-home advertising, in placement within stores, within pubs. Subliminal messaging is huge and you know tv advertising has been doing it for for lots of time and and this is actually even more powerful because it's 
at the point of purchase. That's why it's so so vital that they all fight for islands or uh, next to checkout because you do just subliminally pick up things that you've seen maybe four times as you go around the store. And if you're doing a TV campaign right now or if you're doing a digital out-of-home advertisement on a, on a bus stop, that's great and all. But if you physically have your brand associated to something which is actively playing a practical sorry is actively giving a practical solution to covid that's even more impactful because not only are you getting visibility but you're also directly being responsible for people sanitizing their hands which genuinely does help prevent the spread yeah no exactly and and actually it's not just that that element of me going to the store and seeing Walkers and potentially purchasing uh, Walkers Chris or, or a Guinness. Um, it's actually then the bigger campaign beyond. Like there is a lot of r- reports going at the moment, which is the brands that are doing the most now are going to see the biggest benefit in one to two years time. Cause people are going to remember what, what they did during this time. They might not you know, talk about it right now, but they will talk about it later. And the venues, the convenience stores or the pubs will remember what Diageo has done. This is why I think it's so smart is nothing about this campaign is saying you have to have Guinness or you have to buy, you know, um, 10 bottles of uh, Johnny Walker, yeah, even, Johnny though, Walker. even though we'd be happy yeah. to happy to oblige. Yeah, we, we've been through a few of those. Already. <laughs> um, yeah, it's not it's not forcing anything on the on the on the venue. It's just doing what is good, you know, what, what is right right now, which will get benefit in the long term from, you know, those venues appreciating and, and having a good kind of connection to Diageo now going forward. And so going to the consumer side of things um, in terms of what they're wanting from their pub experience now, uh, and I thought something that was really interesting that James spoke about, which I didn't really consider until now, um, is the there's a, there's a thing within British culture, there's a need to watch live sport with your friends in the pub. It's not, not the same sitting on the sofa, you know, with your other half and your cat wandering around. The goal goes in, you know, you might share, but there's no, <laughs> there's no communal feel to it. Yeah. And looking at the outdoor things, I think that could actually be really, really interesting. You know, how can you turn a beer garden in the summer into an outdoor, you know, like theatre, yeah. essentially, to watch the football, the rugby, whatever it may be. Do you think that will be a really exciting innovation for consumers that will come out of this and something they've never experienced before? Yeah, I mean, this is where the on-trade is completely changing. You know, I think there's going to be new pubs in a way or new experiences that are going to come out on the back of, of COVID. Um, that actually, what, what we're seeing is, is COVID has just led to decisions that probably would have, or, or innovation that would have taken three or four years because consumers uh, are just slow to adopt things that is just forcing adoptions, forcing innovation. Like uh, what we're doing in the UK, which has never happened before is outdoor cinemas where you drive in and watch it from your car. That's been happening in the US for 50, 60 years. It's and we're usually happened. very, very <laughs> sceptical about bringing things over from the US. Yeah. And, and that's now become a thing that everyone loves and I'm seeing on Instagram and everyone's loving it. Like that would never have happened unless COVID happened. So again, in the, in the entrees, these new things that might seem a bit alien, like going to the pub in winter and watching football outside, actually could become some of the best 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 experiences you have during winter. Uh, I can think of anything better than going to the pub during winter, but I didn't do it very much because yeah. in winter you just lock, lock in your room and you, that's all you do. As well, yeah, I can imagine now the lovely comfy seating, heaters on. Sounds great, yeah. 
I mean, I was going to say blankets, but if everyone's no one, no touching blankets. Yeah, sure, no, you're not really that. There, there are some venues that do that, but the only ones I can remember are like super high end, premium ones. You can't get in, or you're spending stupid amounts. They have the nice rugs that yeah. put on you and heaters everywhere. But if then every pub can do that, it changes the whole landscape, and and then it's it's, it's accessible for everyone, not just yeah. you know. Uh, the upper, upper class kind of people. I think one of the things we really took away from that is one, obviously, the amazing work that Diageo is doing with the Raising the Bar campaign to help not just their direct customers, but the the entirety of the on-trade landscape, which I thought was really impressive. Um, but also what I took away from that was the excitement around what life's going to be like as a consumer when all of these innovations come in and it's going to be to everyone's benefit. I mean, do, do people really enjoy standing at a bar waiting for a drink? No, especially when it's three or four deep on a Friday in London after work. Nobody wants to be stood there. And so I think a lot of these innovations are going to be to everyone's advantage. It'll take some getting used to, but I think we'll get there. Definitely. And I think, um, you know, obviously the, the title of this podcast, in, Inside a Tech Startup, um, I think just to give a bit more insight into how this came about from our end, like how did we land at Diageo, uh, you know, an absolute huge business, um, typically extremely difficult to work with um not not you know there's no offense for them it's just a size of business for any business our size trying to work with a big business is always difficult um especially due to speed because when we approached them was about a a month or so ahead of when boris suddenly announced that um pubs are reopening on the 4th of july i think it was um we had to move incredibly quickly on our side we can do that but Diageo typically wouldn't be able to move that quickly. Um, but how we had to position ourselves to get the deal over the line was actually we're going to do all the leg, like most of the legwork on the technology front, on the um, taking, you know, accepting orders, logistics, customer service. These are all things that Diageo typically either can do but are just not kitted out to do very quickly or there's so much red tape that they're just not either allowed to do it or they don't even have the function to do it. So for example, customer service, Diageo does not sell direct to customers. They do not have customer service teams. So we had to internally as a startup, look at that and go, okay, although we don't have the biggest customer service team in the world, actually we'd put most of them on furlough because charged up was, you know, completely um, offline at that point. Um, we had to wrap that up and we had to present to them, you know, our, our plan of how we're going to do everything. We're going to do, we're going to, well, yeah, we create a whole website from scratch to accept orders. We, we build a customer service team. We built everything from a 360 point of view so that all that Diageo had to do was, you know, give us the, give us the, the nod and uplift the campaign uh, and drive the message and use their great brand, which gets, you know, the penetration into the, into the venues. And obviously we, we like to have interesting conversations, uh, on the podcast and give as much insight as we can. Uh, but we also do like to give some advice. And so do you think in order for a smaller business who's looking to get involved with a huge name like Diageo, do you think a key way of enabling that, obviously it's not only persistency, but also making it as easy as possible for them to say yes. And so taking away uh, all of the hard work that they would have to put into it and taking the burden on yourself, do you think that's really key to to get that process sped up. Yeah, no, hundred percent. Um, you know, there's, it's one of the trickiest things to, to work with a corporate and to win that client. But actually I've seen it before where startups promise the world to get the client over the board, uh, you know, 
get them to sign on the dotted line, but then completely under-deliver because they've just completely oversold. So there's a fine line between overselling uh, what you guys can do versus, you know, selling kind of all the services you can provide, but also be smart with it. Look at the services that they, you know, they can't do and say, you know, we can do these. Or if you're serving, you say the similar service, but yours is just so much better, of course, pitch that in as well. Um, but no, I, I always look at partnerships in a way. So it's, what are our, what are our strengths? What are their strengths? Their strengths is, is brand power, it's distribution. Um, you know, it's, you know, ethanol in this case. <laughs> ethanol, which was the first reason I, I reached out. Um, but no, yeah, just their size that they have, you know, they have, they have money which they can put into this stuff as well, which is obviously and enables things to move move a bit quicker. Um, so yeah, I look at that and then look at us. We we also have a decent network, network size. We have trust in in the on trade, um, but we have a technology team. We have customer service teams. We can ramp things up and we're agile. Um, and we combine those two things together, and it makes this campaign which is unheard of and i think what's something that's really important as well is particularly with a project like cleaned up because it's so specific to covid times um of course diageo if they really wanted to not that they would have probably considered it before we we approached them with it they could do it all themselves but they don't have those teams and those types of manufacturers because it's a completely different world to them and so because we were able to provide the manufacturing, everything else to do with it, um, they might not have ever considered doing something like this previously until we approached, but because that we did, um, that put it on their minds and realised this could be a very uh, strong addition to the Raising the Bar campaign. Um, And so for next week, I'm not sure if we we have anyone lined up yet. I think there's our talent booker is working very hard and by that I mean it's just us (laughs) Um, but if you want to listen to more episodes of the Inside a Startup podcast you can find us on all of the usual podcast channels your Apple your Spotify YouTube mainly you'll find us on LinkedIn probably you'll see lots of our, our various clips but if you want to go back to listen to previous episodes I shouldn't say episode I should just say episode because there's only one Uh, This is number two. You can find us there. Uh, And please subscribe on all those platforms. We'll have lots of more interesting conversations coming down the line. There are so many interesting guests that we can get on. And I'm sure that isn't the last of James we see on the podcast. And also it won't be the last of Diageo we see on the podcast. Um, That's all from me this week. Charlie, any parting words, wisdom? No, it's just, uh, it's been great to chat a bit further, you know, with Diageo, it's just been heads down, getting the campaign done, and it's nearly done now. So actually looking back is quite nice uh, and looking at all the achievements we've done together. But as he said, um, there's two more years to go of this campaign. So looking forward to the future as well uh, with Diageo and see, see what else we can, we can do with them. Excellent. That was episode two of the Insider Startup podcast with our first special guest, James Metcalf. We hope you enjoyed. And if you did, please remember to subscribe on whatever platform you get your podcasts. And if you enjoyed, share with friends and colleagues. Why not? If you are listening and you think you have some valuable insights to share with the world, you can search for Charged Up across all social platforms and get in touch with us. We would love to hear from you. Next week, we have another very special guest, Jamie Rawsthorn from the Zach and Jay show. But you'll have to tune in next week for that one. Until then, stay safe. Goodbye.